to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. The R&R we're going to look at today is repentance and redemption. So if you have a Bible, if you are, their main text today is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. If you would just follow along with me, please. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, I just pray for the pouring out of your Holy Spirit on everybody here in this message today that you would just touch their hearts. Penetrate deep, Lord, those things that you want your people to know. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word lawlessness. One of the things about a month ago, as Pastor Joe says, we know that every other month that one of us is going to be up here to teach. So about a month ago, the Lord put this particular passage on my heart. So I've had a month to uh, pick out things that the Lord was showing me, you know, reading, studying the whole thing. So lawlessness, I want everybody to understand who's a believer here today, what you've actually done. And I want others to realize that maybe you haven't done that. Maybe you haven't understood exactly what God's word is saying that we're called to do. And then, of course, there's always people because God loves the world so much that he has people listening for the first time, maybe. Or maybe it's their 20th time. And God is waking them up. It's their time to really understand the love of Jesus Christ. So may that take place all over the world today, throughout every congregation who has a heart for him. Amen. Seriously, that that happens to people because it happened to so many of you, right? That the Lord at one point in your life woke you up and thank God for that. So lawlessness, it's the condition of someone without law. Now, That condition could be out of ignorance. They don't know any better. Or it could be just out of violation. They they know what's right and they don't do it. They want to do their own thing. They want to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow they will die. Well, God's word is our law. God's word. You know, we think of the law and right away we think of what? The Ten Commandments, right? That's how we can grasp what the law is. But God's word is our lifeline. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces. 
Our prayer today is that God, through his Holy Spirit, pierces every heart that hears his word today. Question, are you without God's word? Do you know God's word? Do you obey it? Do you follow your heart or do you follow God's heart? These are serious questions, pivotal, life-changing questions. You know, people say, well, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You know, that doesn't mean anything. Did you know that? Because the Bible says even the devil believes. Even the demons believe. So believe in, in Jesus, believe in there is a Jesus, there is a God, doesn't save you. And we're going to look at that a little more today. In 1 Corinthians 6, chapters, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, there is throughout our world today a hesitation to talk about God and his word. <clears throat> you might feel it in your job place. You might feel it in a conversation you might have with a stranger in a Wawa, stop and shop, wherever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you and me. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. Set apart is what sanctified means. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? We can all relate. We can all relate to sinners because we are sinners. You can recognize a sinner because we're sinners. That's easy. We love everyone. We want everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Joe asked a question. And the question was, how many of you have heard of Klaus Schwab? And there was not many. So I'm going to continue that just with a brief thing here. How many people know the fellow on the right? Has anybody seen him? So again, there's maybe five or six hands. His name is Yuval Jonah Harari. Yuval Jonah Harari. He's the right-hand man of Klaus Schwab. And why am I showing this to you today with R&R? Because we live in a world where there is a worldview and there's a biblical worldview. Very opposed to each other. The question is, if you're a a student of God's word. And you love God's word. And you rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal to you God's word. You're going to have a biblical worldview. 
You're not going to be locked in to the worldview, which is in opposition of Jesus Christ. I think all the pastors over the past couple of years, we've been teaching different parts of prophecy. Because just like in the days of Noah, where Noah was constructing an ark and warning people of the coming judgment, the same thing has been happening. We keep talking about the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church, the catching up of the saints. And there's people just like in the days of Noah that aren't listening. They think that he's slow in his coming. Is it really true what the Bible says? I want to run a clip. I want you to hear, and I believe some of the clips, if you look in the background, I know, and this is something you can research on your own. There, This fell on the right. You can leave that up there. It fell on the right. Was at Harvard University being interviewed? Harvard. Okay, an Ivy League school. And these young minds, and I don't know if it'll be in the clip that I show you, but it will be, if you investigate, you'll see the audience clapping, shaking their head at what this man is saying. So I'd like you to listen for a few minutes to um, this segment. We don't have to wait until Christ's second coming in order to overcome that, a couple of geeks in a laboratory can do it if you give them enough time and money. You have a lovely passage where you say, looking at the world today, God seems to be making a comeback, but this is a mirage. God is dead. It just takes a while to get rid of the body. <laughs> I, I don't think life has any meaning. Um, so, so in in that sense, it's 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 not it's it's not a strong counter argument. I know that many religions and philosophies have based the meaning of life on death and what ha what happens after death. But I think these are all fictional stories that people have invented uh, through history. They are not the truth, because throughout history, uh, death was kind of the great equalizer. I mean, the poor people always told themselves, say, in the Middle Ages, yes, now these rich people, they have all the good things in life, but they will die in the end, at least that. Uh, just think what it means to be a poor person in a world when you die, but the rich continue to live young and beautiful forever. I mean, it's a cause for a lot of anger. If you think about uh, the Bible, for example, so in the first book of Genesis, what God does is to create animals and plants and humans. And we now want to gain this ability to ourselves to manufacture uh, animals and, and, and plants and humans. And we even go beyond God. I mean, even if you believe in the Bible, the only thing that God of the Bible managed to create is organic beings. Uh, he managed to create the cows and the tomatoes and the giraffes and the humans, all organic. Now we try to go beyond the God of the Bible and create inorganic life, something he never managed to do, either according to the Bible or according to, uh, to, to, to biology. For four billion years, all of life was organic, 
and now we want to create inorganic life. That's, that's really, divinity is, is not far enough to describe what we are trying to do. If the soul and the afterlife and, and things like that, the main uh, task of God was to ensure agricultural production and victory in war. If you read really the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it's all about agricultural production. It's about rain, it's about pestilence, it's about fertility. And um, now we are much better than the God of the Bible. I mean, in, in, in the Bible you have these recurring droughts that the, as the people of Israel do something wrong, gods become angry, drought, no water. But now uh, Israel has built, in recent years, a huge desalinization factory on the shores of the Mediterranean. And most drinking water in Israel today actually comes from, from these plants, from these factories. So we can make God as angry as we like. I mean, he can stop the rains. We don't care. We still have water because science has managed to do, to go way beyond the expectations of the ancient Hebrews. Um, I think the most interesting place today from a religious perspective is Silicon Valley. Uh, my bet is this is where the new religions of the 21st century uh, are being created, will be created, and these will be kind of techno-religions, religions based on technology, religions that make all the old promises of Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and so forth, they will also promise uh, happiness and prosperity and justice and even eternal life. But here on earth, with the help of technology, and not after we die, with the help of super superhuman beings. And in a way, I would say that we've already seen the first big techno-religion in history. Okay, so that's just a few minutes of this man who's a right-hand man of Klaus Schwab with the World Economic Forum. This is recent stuff. Okay, so that's a worldview. Totally opposite. You could see almost every clip from the biblical worldview that you and I hold. Okay, this was a survey done at Arizona Christian University among 1,000 pastors. Okay, and it was done just a couple weeks ago. New studies shows a shocking lack of biblical worldview among American pastors. I want to skip through. This is available to you. You can just go online and watch it. I want to skip over a couple things. So George Borna, who runs the research for the Borna Group, says it's just further evidence that the culture is influencing the American church much more than the Christian churches are influencing the culture. 37% of the pastors polled possess a biblical worldview. And the majority, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism, which is the union of different religious beliefs and cultures together. Among senior pastors, 41% hold a biblical worldview. Only 41%. 28% among associate pastors. And 12% among children's and youth pastors hold a biblical worldview. Now that's very scary. 
to know that people are not here in the Bible in the very churches they good go to. And I praise God that that is not true at this church upstairs or downstairs. Amen. Children's teaching pastors, the level of biblical worldview is a mere 13%. Now, as a teacher in a public school for 44 years, and many of your children are in secular schools, check this out. A person's worldview primarily develops before the age of 13. Then goes through a period of refinement during their teens and their 20s. Discovering that seven out of every eight of those pastors lack a biblical worldview helps to explain why so few among the nation's youngest generations are developing a heart and a mind for biblical principles and a way of life and why our society seems to have run wild over the last decade. And I was thinking of our our kids. They come to church maybe Sunday, maybe Very few go on a Wednesday. So let's just take our church here. They're downstairs right now for 70 to 90 minutes learning about Jesus and his love for them and what he's done for them. But then they go home and maybe you're a parent who gets into God's word, prays with your kids. Awesome. But then they go off to their neighborhood friends or to school. And how do we know what's being put in their minds and their hearts during those five hours. So during the course of seven days, we know for 50, 60 to 90 minutes, they're getting God's word, plus whatever you're doing at home, if you're doing anything at all. The American Worldview Inventory 2022 found that the prevailing worldview among pastors is best described as syncretism. The blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. Six out of every ten pastors hold a synchristic worldview. Fifty-seven percent of all pastors think and act in consistently biblical ways regarding the purpose of life or their calling. The fellow on the right that I showed you said that the Bible is fake news, that Jesus' death and resurrection is fake news, that they, can, they want to change the human by planting things in there for the transhumanism to get people not thinking about God anymore, but thinking about the current world and the culture and making everybody uh, together as one. Absent of God. Culturally, not pastors now, just culturally, nine out of ten U.S. adults embrace syncretism as their primary worldview. Barnard noted, it certainly seems that if America is going to experience a spiritual revival, that awakening is needed just as desperately in our pupils, our pulpits, as in the pews. So Lord, I pray today for those of us here and listening That there's a change in our heart, our mindset, or a greater intensity 
to be more in love with Jesus and his word than we've ever been before. And that the Holy Spirit really penetrates deep into our heart. That we take steps to increase our walk with him. There is a way that seems right to death. There seems a way that's right to man. But at its end is the way of death. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl, no teen comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus. There's no other way. It's a narrow door. In Acts eleven eighteen, it says, When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, if there's a repentance to life, doesn't there have to be a repentance to death? Right? If there's one side, there's got to be the opposite of that side. In Isaiah 35, 8, it says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now there's a highway. A highway of holiness. Now remember the word holy. Sometimes, depending on where you came from, your religious upbringing, you hear the word holy and all of a sudden you think of above you. It's something like sainthood or something. But remember, the scripture calls you and me saints. Saint is somebody that's just called and chosen and set apart. And that's what the word holy means, set apart. So there is a way of being set apart. Do you know you've been set apart? Do you feel set apart in this world that we live in that's temporary? Right? We know this world is temporary. Just look at your birth certificate. We're not the same as we used to be. But God is doing a work in us. If we are his, he's doing a work. And notice it says up here that the unclean shall not pass over it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've accepted his death on the cross for your sins, you're clean. But Pastor Vinny, I just sinned this morning. Yeah, but when Jesus died for you and me, all your sins were in the future. You accepted him into your heart. Everything is cleaned. Now, we're supposed to confess our sins because he's faithful and right to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this road that you and I are on, the way of holiness, even if they are fools, you know, how many think that you've arriven and and reached what God wants you to be? Anybody? Good. We have no liars in here today. That's awesome. None of us are where God wants us to be. But God sees us as the finished product. He knows as the author and perfecter of your faith where he's bringing you, right? We don't see that. 
We just trust in him because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And notice, they shall not go astray. What does that mean? We're not going to go off the road to holiness. Repentance. Let's look at it. We see it throughout the scripture, but we see it in all different ways. We know Lucifer never repented, right? He's still in rebellion against the Lord. We know Adam and Eve were in rebellion. Remember what they did when they rebelled against the Lord? The first thing they did, they hid. They played hide the first game of hide and seek. Right? They hid. Where are you, God was saying. He knew where they were. It's like the kid, right, that hides. And you see his feet and the rest of his body is behind the couch or something. And he thinks he's hiding from mom and dad. Can't hide from God, right? So what did they do? They started their own religion. The fig leaf religion. They covered themselves because of their sin. They knew they did wrong. And they were itching and scratching and rubbing and rashing and all that stuff. But God loved them so much that he offered them some skins of animals. And guess what? They accepted his covering. They turned from the figs, leaves, and put on the animal skins. But remember with the animal skins what had to take place? God had to kill some animals. Blood had to be shed. A forecast of what he was going to do at the cross one day for you and me. So repentance is to think differently. To reconsider the direction you're heading. To see your sin in a different way. To see that it's something that is offensive to God. Might not be offensive to you or your friends. But it's offensive to God. Your creator. The one who loves you. The one who came down and died for you. The one who showed you there was another way. Repentance is you change your mind. How you think about things. How you look at things. You change your direction. You were heading in one way. You turn and you follow another way. God destroyed the roots and fruits of sin at the cross. In Matthew 3, 8 and 9, it says, Produce fruit worthy of repentance. Don't think to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The Jews thought, hey, Abraham's our dad. We're in. No, it doesn't work that way. God doesn't have grandchildren. It's an individual one-on-one move that you as an individual have to choose him and realize that you are a sinner, falling short of God's perfect standards. And then you're confronted with what he did at the cross. Matthew 3, 8, which I just read, prove by the way you live that you have repented. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. It's going to be evidenced in your life. Repentance doesn't mean anything 
if you keep doing what you're sorry for. Boy, I did that for the longest time. I would sin, Lord, I'm sorry. Next morning, I would sin, Lord, I'm sorry. That night, I would sin, Lord, I'm sorry. If I slapped you in the face, I'm sorry. You might forgive me. Slap you in the face again. I'm sorry. Again, I'm sorry. How many times would you let me slap you in the face? Am I sorry if I keep doing it? No. No. Jesus said in John 15, 5 and 8, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. One of the things that's going to take place in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ is fruit, good fruit. Remember, the devil believes, the demons believe, atheists might believe, well, no, they don't. Um, there's no fruit in the lives of those who are opposed to God. But in a believer's life, there should be fruit. There should be evidence of a change. Crucial. Repentance, we talked about a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of attitude. Admitting you're a sinner. We have the Ten Commandments as a standard. But I can say, can you ever, have, has anybody in here ever lied? Has anybody in here ever had anger unrighteously? Has anybody in here ever stolen something? Has anybody ever looked at another person with hate or envy or an impure motive? Has anybody here ever dishonored Mom and dad, when you were younger or now? These are things that are against God's perfect standard. And it says if you've broken one of those, you've broken them all. Whether you have 10 billion sins or one sin, it falls short of God's perfect standard and you cannot go into his presence. Because he's a holy God. He's a perfect God. He doesn't accept sin. And that's why he loved you and me so much. He sent his son down to die on the cross for sinners. And we're all in that boat. Agreeing with God that what you've done is wrong. Not covering it up. Not tolerating. Not compromising. It's asking God to change you. Change your heart. Change your mind. And it's a change of mind that leads to a changed heart. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glorious of his glory. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is so important. You and I, if you receive Christ into your heart, turn from your lifestyle and followed his lifestyle. Asked him in to cleanse you, 
to change your mind and heart. He seals you with His Holy Spirit. He seals you. This is important and we want to look at it. God seals you with His Holy Spirit. His presence is always in your life. Always. 24-7, 365. He's always there. He is a guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Blessed Trinity. God Himself is living in you. The seal is the Holy Spirit Himself. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a feeling. It's the Holy Spirit living and abiding in you. His presence denotes ownership and security. We need no other down payment or guarantee from God. He doesn't have to do anything else. He's there in your life. Nothing else is provided or needed. Now, at the end of that verse that I read, talks about until the redemption of the purchased uh, possession. What is that? Well, it's our resurrection. It's our glorification in His presence. It's being caught up into the air to meet the Lord in the clouds. Or, if we go to sleep, which the rest of the world calls death, but if we go to sleep, we wake up in the presence of the Lord. And then, one day, at the rapture of the church, our bodies will be glorified and reunited with our spirits and we will be with the Lord forever. All praise, all glory, all honor is His. It's nothing we've done. It's all grace and mercy to be able to understand what He's trying to show us through His Word. Now, when you receive Jesus into your heart, you're filled with His Holy Spirit. You're filled. It's not a one-time event. The word in the Greek is talking about a continual filling. Like everywhere you go, Lord, just fill me with your Holy Spirit to overflowing so I can touch other lives with your love and your mercy and your grace. Whoever it is that God brings into our paths. It's a constant filling received by faith. And you can say, Lord, just fill me today more with your Holy Spirit. Remember Elijah said to Elijah, I want a double portion of your spirit. Guys, girls, how about we have a billion, billion, billion to the billion, billionth power filled of the Holy Spirit? I think that would make a difference in our culture. I do. Because greater is he that is in us than he is in the world. The world doesn't stand a chance to a spirit-filled believer. Weakness and defeat result when we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Many Christians don't really understand the power of God's Holy Spirit. Getting to know Him through the Scriptures. He points us to Jesus, but it's important to understand what He's doing and wants to do in your life. This is not something you manufacture to say, okay, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit today. Come on. I want to do five pushes. Fill me, fill me, fill me. It doesn't work that way. It's not manufactured. And it's not optional. 
The Bible tells us. Be filled. And here we just, this is just one example. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. To do those things that God calls you to do. In John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now, you may have come to the Lord a while ago and been AWOL, absent without leave. And the Lord might be calling you back. That's why he gave the story of the prodigal son. He was waiting for his son to come back. Maybe he's calling you back today. The psalmist didn't fully know how God would redeem him from death. But he knew that if he were united to an eternal God, then he must have a plan for us. Now, Abraham, if you remember this story, God killed all the animals, split them in half and put them in a row, one on one side and one on the other. And he put Abraham to sleep and he walked right down through the path. There was a covenant he was making with Abraham and Abraham had nothing to do with it. He was sleeping. God had everything to do with it. It was a forecast of what he did for you and me at the cross. While we were still in our sins and not thinking about God, he died for us. He took care of it. Because he loves us so much. It's a free gift. What he did. We just have to accept that gift. Now we know. That looking back. A couple thousand years. Jesus went to the cross. That's how he did this. That's how he accomplished. Everything that we've been talking about up to this point. He became sin for us. He took your place. He took my place on the cross. Now we see throughout scripture that people individually, nationally, they needed to repent. They needed to turn from the way they were going and follow God. And God was going to heal them. The, um, the guy on the uh, screen, the atheist, he's a, he's a Jewish atheist. That one man that was on the right of class swab, Jewish atheist. Okay. He said that, you know, we just have to get rid of the body. Well, they tried to do that, didn't they? But he pops up all the time all over the place. You can't keep Jesus down. You can't keep him down. So here on the cross, you had two thieves on either side of Jesus. Both of them, both, were mocking him, tormenting him. Both of them. Then you see something, right? Later on in the story, the one guy kept mocking. And then the other guy said, leave him alone. He's innocent. We deserve to be here for what we've done. But he's done nothing wrong. There was a change, wasn't there? In that mindset, that heart of the repentant thief. And remember what Jesus said to him today? You will be with me in paradise. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. 
But there was a change of heart. And then we see other places in the scripture where the Ninevites, remember Jonah? Lousy attitude, Jonah, for a prophet of God. Just said eight words, and he said it with an attitude. But yet, they say over a million people, Ninevites, they repented. They changed their hearts. They put on sackcloth. Even the animals, they put on sackcloth. They were taking no chances for God's judgment to fall on them. And for a hundred years, they were spared before they turned back to their pagan and idolatrous ways, the next, next generation. But they repented. They turned. We see the thief on the cross. He turned in his heart, in his mind. God knew what was going on. He knows that when a person comes up here and asks Jesus into their heart, maybe there's a person in the back or up in the balcony that says that prayer quietly in their heart. They don't want to come up here. They feel embarrassed. They don't. God knows your heart. He saves you. He knows where you are. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That God can meet us where we are regardless of our personalities, right? Regardless of how we are. He went to that cross. He suffered. He died. He didn't have to do this. And He did it for you and me so that we would not have to go through this. Because, you see, the punishment of sin is death. Physical death. But more importantly, spiritual death. And He loves us so much that He says, don't accept me. I died for you. I didn't have to do this, but I did it out of love for you. I shed my blood for you. I died for you. I sacrificed myself for you so that you would have eternal life. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for He shall receive me. And what great stories we have. Examples in the Scripture of Stephen when he was being stoned. He looked up And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to receive him. Ready to take him, to comfort him. Beautiful, beautiful example of how God takes care of us in the moments before we leave the temporary earth to go to our eternal home. So as we wrap up here, redemption. We talked about repentance. Let's talk about redemption because that's a good thing. The price being paid for the freedom that is purchased. Paying a price to recover from the power of another. So if a person was a slave and somebody went to buy a slave and bought that slave, redemption would be he sets him free. He's no longer a slave. He's got his freedom. You and I, who are lawbreakers, We've broken the laws of God. We're sinners. We're enslaved under the power of sin. We're chained to the power of sin. But Jesus Christ, what He did at the cross, He breaks those chains. He sets us free. We no longer are slaves to those sins. Isn't that a good thing? Church, isn't that great? Do we understand what He's done and what He's gone through to free us? 
Jesus freed us from the power of the Ten Commandments by his horrible, excruciating death. We need to ask for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me for my sins. All of them, the ones I remember, the ones I forgotten. Just forgive me. Change my mind, Lord. Let me, let me have your mind and your heart. Turn me from my self-directed life and follow a Jesus-directed life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me follow your direction. You know, Jesus suffered and died in your place. He was your substitute. For your eternal life, he suffered a hellish death. Jesus did not redeem us by a sinless life, although he was sinless. Tempted in all ways that you and I are, but not given into it. Not given into the temptation. We're not saved by his moral example, although he sets us a moral example. It's through his death he redeems us. Through that excruciating, where we get the word crucifix from, excruciating. Through that excruciating death, through the sacrifice of his body, he redeems us. He gave his life for all of mankind. He paid through his death the total payment of all sin. If it was just his blood, he could have given a transfusion and still lived. But it wasn't just giving us a transfusion. He sacrificed his whole body, his soul, his spirit. It was a total sacrifice out of love for you and me. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Remember the Holy of Holies where once a year the high priest could go in and you remember they put bells around the hem of his garments. So in case he saw God face to face, if he dropped dead, they could pull him out because they weren't going in there. Well, the Holy of Holies here on this earth was just an image of the heavenly Holy of Holies where Jesus, when he died on the cross, fulfills this Hebrews 9.12 where he entered the most holy place all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption for all those who accept the gift of eternal life. Have you? Have you received that gift? Or are you still in your sins? Are you still living your own way? Or have you chosen to live God's way through the power, not yours, of His Holy Spirit? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. You have an inheritance, everybody. We're going to all see that inheritance together one day. It's going to be complete in the glorified state of God's presence. That we're going to be there physically. Seeing the completion of that inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first covenant was the blood covenant. Was the Old Testament covenant. The Ten Commandments. We have a new covenant 
Jesus Christ living and active in our hearts through the power of his Holy Spirit. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. From Acts 20, 21. To Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. How are you doing with that, guys? I think I blew that a day ago, I think. Or it might have been two days ago. But be gentle to all. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, which is meekness. Correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. May God touch the hearts of everyone here in this and grant those people repentance who have never repented before so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, that enslavement, right, the chains, having been taken captive by him, To do His will. There's a highway of holiness. That means there's also a highway of unholiness. There's repentance to life. There's repentance to death. There's following the will of your Creator. But there's also following the will, the Bible says, of your father, the devil, If you have not come to repentance and redeemed. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. And as they're coming up, I just want to read you this story. And before I read the story, the word repent occurs 34 times in the New King James Version. The word repentance occurs 24 times. The word redeem occurs 62 times in the New King James Version. And the word redemption 23 times. And we saw, as Psalm 49 says, verse 8, for the redemption of their souls, the buying back of their souls is costly. How costly? It caused God to come down to die For your redemption and mine. That's how costly it was. We should pray for. Class swap. We should pray for. I know his middle name is Jonah. For Jonah. We need to pray for their salvation. Because they're on their highway to hell. Can they be saved? Yes. But are they in legion? Maybe they're Lord and Savior. I believe. Could be Satan himself. And they're following his mandates. And trying to bring the Luciferian kingdom to this earth. Which would be the rise of the Antichrist, globalism and all that. So here's the story. Some years ago a murderer was sentenced to death. The murderer's brother to whom the state was deeply indebted for former service. 
besought the governor of the state for his brother's pardon. The pardon was granted. And the man visited his brother with the pardon in his pocket. What would you do, he said to his brother, if you received a pardon? The first thing I would do, the brother answers, is to track down the judge who sentenced me and murder him. And the next thing I would do is track down the chief witness and murder him. The brother rose up and left the prison with the pardon in his pocket. Because of what this man had done, the death penalty was waiting on him. The opportunity was granted to him, but it called for repentance. called for a change of heart, a change of mind. A change in the way he looked for things. Since there could be no repentance, there also could be no pardon. There could be no redemption. So as... The praise team plays, whether you're home or here. If you need to repent, if you need to be redeemed, I want you to come forward or stand in your place. If you're home, just bow your head and we'll say a prayer when we're done. And we just pray that the Holy Spirit just uh, blesses your hearts today. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossroads. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.